Well, good morning. Who's excited for that compassion experience? Another great, it's going to be a great time, truly. We've taken our family through that a couple times, and it is truly an awesome experience for families as a whole, but especially for kids to get a sense of uh, how, how kids live in other, sea, in other nations, overseas, in uh, developing countries, and uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful exhibit. I encourage you to be a part of that. Again, you can sign up out of the journey wall. We're going to sign up our family to participate in that as well, and uh, Compassion is just a wonderful organization, and we're excited about what's happening there. Well, after last week's sermon and after last night's game, oy vey, whew, I decided to take my advice from last Sunday, which was take a chill pill, relax, by way of a donut, okay? So I, I ate a nice donut, and uh, I wanted to, to post about it, as is the custom here in 2017, let everyone know what I'm doing with all of my meals and travels and whatnot. And so here I am, posting eating a donut on Twitter. I'm eating a pound donut. Want to join me? Okay, here's another one. I uh, also wanted everyone to know on Facebook that I also like donuts, okay? want to be sure everyone knows across all social media platforms. This is a vintage po- photo of me eating that same donut, in case you want to see it from a different angle. Isn't that nice? Then I want to show you one of my best new skills that I advertised on LinkedIn. And then finally, you might not have known this, but I also double as a Google employee, so I'm one of the few that use Google+. Plus. Is that what it's called? Google Plus, yeah. Google employee who eats donuts. That's me. All right. Okay. Thanks for some cheap laughs. And especially for Cody Riedel coming up with the idea. <laughs> hey, I want to take just a couple moments to review where we've been these past five weeks before we get into this morning's message. Unless you know, this morning's message will just provide some things for you to think about. I'll provide some different ideas, perhaps, that we haven't thought about for some time here today, and encourage you to think about them, process them together with family or friends. There's a recent AT&T ad, AT&T ad, that summarizes where we are well in our 2017 American climate. The ad goes like this, you can now move at the speed of instantly. We really like that, don't we? I'm kind of addicted to that. I want to move at the speed of, give it to me now, instantly. Uh, I was thinking this past week about the difference between internet when it was first invented back in the mid-90s, maybe a little bit before that, but I first got to use it in the mid-90s. And the internet 1.0, they call it now, was all about information. It was about text. It was about giving kind of an encyclopedia of information to you. And you use it as a tool. Internet 2.0, not so much. Internet 2.0 that we have now is about what? It's about images and streaming, internet, uh, visual gratification. And the result of Internet 2.0 is we can now stream entertainment into our eyes and into our minds 25 hours a day, right? I mean, pretty much nonstop. And we like that too. I do too. And we all like that, that we can have easy everywhere, instant access to entertainment all the time. 
But it's interesting, the effect that this has had on us. We've started to become addicted to entertainment, addicted to getting what we want right now. You think about the way entertainment was experienced in America in previous generations, really until just the last 40 years. You see a couple pictures on the screen of a family in a Norman Rockwell painting around a, fire, around a, uh, a piano. Or you think of the old fireside chats that were had as families got together around the radio and they listened to a fireside chat, perhaps from the president or from someone giving a narrative reading of some kind, a poetic reading of some kind. That's the way entertainment was done in America only about 40 years ago. Anyone remember that? Anyone want to admit to remembering that? Okay. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. But today, entertainment is quite different. It's not an occasional leisure to give us comfort. It's something that we demand all the time. Instant, everywhere access and entertainment on demand. It forces me to ask the question, are we interested in God at all when we can be entertained all the time? Where does God fit into a world that's instant access and all the time entertainment? Because God doesn't play the fool, does he? God isn't like entertainment who will always be at our beck and call. And he's not like the speed of instantly. He doesn't answer our prayers instantly, does he? This is part of the reason for the series that we've embarked upon over these past six weeks. It's wise for us in this digital age to use this moment and pause. Am I using technology or is technology using me? And then how do I gain wisdom to take it back under control? Lest it take control over me. The truth of the matter is... Technology can become a really easy replacement for things like Bible study and prayer and meeting with God in solitude or even wanting to spend time with other people and get to know their stories. And so really as we've uh, finish this series, as we're finishing this series today, we, we would all admit that we're, we're really just beginning on this. We're embarking upon a time in our culture that we're going to be fighting for the next 5 or 10 or 15 years. And we have to always be asking the question, what does wisdom look like with this new technology? And what does courage look like as we seek to adapt some of it and push against other parts of it? This is part of my challenge as well. Let me review just a bit well, where we've been and uh, a few further resources. Again, we've really just begun, so if you're looking for further resources on this, there's a handout as you leave these exits today. You can pick up this handout. You can put it on your refrigerator or in your Bible. And there's a number of different resources in there that we would recommend. But let me just bring to your attention a few of them. One of them is a book that Susie and I read a number of months ago that's been really impactful for our family. It's called The Tech Wise Family. Just about 150 pages, easy read, but a wonderful book on this subject matter. Another one is a website titled The Culture Translator from Axis.org. 
Let me ask, are there any parents in the room that have a hard time understanding some of the language around technology that your kids use? Anyone else? Okay, or contemporary trends and how lingo changes. Lingo changes from, from, from one, one generation to another generation. If you didn't know that, you have some serious problems. Okay, so this uh, website will help provide translation for contemporary lingo that our kids and our teenagers use to be able to interact with our teenagers about the language that they're, use, that they're, that they're using and that uh, they're experiencing on a daily basis in school. That's the cultural translator from access.org. And then final, finally, the resource that's been recommended most to me across this series from you is a resource titled, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And I hope the answer to that is no. I hope. But I've had many resources recommended to me over these past several weeks, and I've been able to read some, look at some, and not others. This one, after having it recommended to me by four or five of you, I finally took the note that I need to read this. And I read this article out of The Atlantic, Have Smartphones Killed, Destroyed the Current Generation, and it was frightening to me. And I, I, I want to hope that that some of his findings are not true, but it's a real challenge for, for us just to consider, and I encourage you to read that article. Now, on the other side of this handout, yeah, you'll see just a review of where we've been in this series. And as we go from this series, I encourage you to take some time with your spouse, take some time well with a friend, and review some of the notes from the series and think about what your next commitments will be. You won't be able to commit to all of the different ideas that we've presented from this stage. But if we all commit to one or two of the spiritual disciplines, we will keep growing spiritually as a result of this six-week series. In week one, well, we talked about the need for a reboot when it comes to technology usage. We talked about possibly developing that age-old spiritual discipline again called fasting, in which we... Say no to something that might be good for a time in order to reawaken our hunger for something better. Reawaken our hunger for God. Then in week two, we talked about the need to repent. That for some of us, digital technology and other things in life have gotten too large, such that they've overwhelmed our focus. We've lost our focus on God, and so we're wise to keep short accounts with Him, and sometimes even repent of the ways we've gotten off of course. The third week we talked about the necessity of reprioritizing, following the words of Jesus. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, Jesus says, and all the rest will fall into its proper place. And so how do we reprioritize our lives around one all-consuming priority? I suggested that we would begin our days with a prayer of surrender. And it's been so encouraging for me to hear from many of you in this room that over these past weeks you've been practicing that prayer of surrender out of Psalm 23, that on a daily basis you're praying Psalm 23 to God and asking those words to be applied to your life. That is so powerful. I pray that you continue with that spiritual discipline. Then Tim Stratton came on stage and he shared about redeem, how we can redeem technology for God's honor and use it even for evangelistic purposes to point others to the love of Christ. And what a great message that was. As I was thinking about that message, I also thought about using technology for redemptive ways in lives of people who are discouraged right now. Do we live in a town where there is a lot of discouragement these days? We do. We do. 
There's a lot of pain in our community these days. I want to encourage you even to use technology, text messages or Facebook messages, however you do it, to encourage one person every week. Maybe go out of your way and use this easy technology to encourage the same person each week because there are so many people that we know who are despondent, who are just kind of withering away on the vine oftentimes because no one speaks blessing into their lives. What a great opportunity for us as Christians. And then finally, last week, while we talked about the need to just chill out, to relax, that a soft answer turns away wrath. And when it comes to digital technology, it's so, so important for us to emphasize how we say it, not just what we say. And so out of that, we talked about the priority of worshiping God, that when we worship God, we are humbled, and we see other people as they are, and we honor them as made in the image of God. So once again, pick this up as you leave today, and spend some time reviewing that. My hope is that that we would all choose one or two commitments that, that we would make as individuals or as families, that from this message series, we begin this battle. Maybe you choose to experiment well with a number of them. That's just fine. Susie and I have had to redo that over this past month, and now we're hoping to do so well with a few friends also. Because honestly, it's too much swimming upstream to do it by ourselves. Isn't that so? It's too hard to fight this battle by ourselves. So get together with a few friends, a couple other families, who likewise are willing to fight this tide with you. I've noted that Americans, on average, check our smartphones 85,000 times a year, or once every 4.3 minutes across a 24-hour day. There's another study that was done to say Americans are tempted to check their smartphones every 30 seconds. How does anyone come up with these research statistics? Come on. I don't know how they can find something like that out, but it sure sounds good in a sermon, so I'll go ahead and use it. The point is we are tempted to check our phones and we go ahead and do so a lot. What are we looking for? Anyone? Shout out in church. What are we looking for? I heard happiness over here. Updates. What else? What? Comments. Yeah, show me the likes. Yeah, what else? Connection. Good, yeah. Attention. All right. Me too. What else? Gratification, I heard. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So many things that we're looking at. I would kind of boil it down to a couple items. When we post online, when we look at our phone, we're looking at an escape from boredom, number one, some kind of escape from the boredom, from the monotony that we feel. And number two, we're looking for a rest, a break. And probably with that, you would add a number three. I heard gratification or happiness, a dopamine hit. A little dopamine hit of gratification, a little dopamine hit of happiness that keeps us coming back. Now the thing is, then we check again. And then again, five minutes later. And then again, two minutes later. And then more and deeper. Until we get to a point that they talk about in addiction circles that is chasing the dragon. If you're around addicts, you know they talk about chasing the dragon, that you always need more and more and deeper and deeper. And there's many people that are doing the exact same thing Well, when it comes to digital technology today. Now, what if I told you that there was an answer to those needs 
of chasing this dragon. And the answer that God would give to us that provides a break from the monotony, a break from the boredom, a sense of affirmation from God, and a sense of rest. And what if I told you that break was called Sabbath? I don't see many heads nodding. Would you believe me? That God's instituted a gift for us called Sabbath that is intended to be a break from the monotony of life, an opportunity to be still and know that God is God and what he says about us and be affirmed in that way, and then to be refreshed. The Ten Commandments were one of God's early gifts to humanity. And some people think of the Ten Commandments as rules of do's and don'ts. That's really not it. The Ten Commandments are a description of a flourishing life. Yes, they are commandments, but even more than that, I would say they're a description of if you live this way, if you obey these laws, you will flourish as people because this is the way God made us. And so it's a life of truth-telling. A life of harmonious relationship with family. A life of worship of God and speaking good words about God. A life of honoring others with our eyes and not coveting. A life of fidelity. A life of good work for several days. And then a nice time to break, to rest from our labors as well. Exodus 20 the time that Moses went up to Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments from God. And the fourth of those Ten Commandments, you'll see up on the screen, is Exodus 20, verses 8 and 9, in which God tells Moses and writes on the stones, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Excuse me. Now this word holy means set apart. It means um, to be revered. A special day that is to be different and is to be unique from all the other days. That's what holy means, to be set apart and to be seen as unique. And so what the Bible is saying to us here is not that the other six days of the week are bad. Work is good in God's economy. Work is very good. But that is the ordinary way of life, those six days. The extraordinary day, the oasis, the day is a different day than the others, the one that is to be holy to the Lord, that is Sabbath. Now Jews practiced the Sabbath in a beautiful way for many, many centuries. But by the time... Jesus came onto the scene, his main opponents treated the Sabbath as a complex rule book. We'll see this together as you look into Mark chapter 2. Why don't you turn in your Bible with me right now to Mark chapter 2, or on your phone, you you can turn there now. You'll find that in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, then Mark. If you get over to Luke or John, you've gone a little bit too far. But Jesus is going to deal with Sabbath here in Mark chapter 2 in a way that confronts the way that Pharisees were dealing with Sabbath at the time of Jesus and brings people back to God's original intention for a Sabbath for us that is holy, that is set apart, that's actually a blessing 
for us. So what, what the Pharisees did, just to provide a little bit of context, is they took the laws, the Ten Commandments, for example, and many others, and they added on all these other layers, additional requirements. They turned into this vast rule book, and it became a stick that hurt people, that hit people, that became this, this bondage for people that no one could live up to. So into that context, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, "The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath." So he concludes in this amazing claim to his divinity. He says, the Son of Man, that's me, Jesus speaking, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He says of himself, I instituted the Sabbath. Now what Jesus does in this passage is the same thing he does a number of different times in the Gospels. He reframes the purpose of Sabbath. The context is that Jewish farmers would leave out uh, in the grain fields these little rows of wheat for the the poor to walk through the grain fields and to be able to pick some wheat or pick some grapes for themselves when they are hungry. This also was part of God's law in the Old Testament. It's called gleaning. That the poor could go through a farmer's field and there would be a little portion that was left out in that farmer's field for the poor, for immigrants, for the fatherless. And they could come through and they could get food there from farmers. This is part of God's gracious provision to people in the Old Testament. Now the thing is, Jesus and the disciples were amongst those who would be classified as poor. Get that through our heads. Jesus and the disciples were poor. And so they received, as they went through the grain fields, that leftover portion that was on the edge of the field that was to be provided by God through the farmer for the needs of the impoverished in their communities. The disciples see Jesus and the disciples doing that. Excuse me, the Pharisees see Jesus doing that and they say, no, you're allowed to do that the other six days of the week, but when you pick grain and grind it up and then you eat it, it's like taking out your combine. That's what they would say. They, they turn in this law, they say you're working by picking that grain on the Sabbath day. They turn into this rule. And Jesus fights against that in this passage. Similarly, in John chapter 5, there's a paralyzed man who is healed by Jesus on the Sabbath day. And um, the man is asked by the Pharisees when he's uh, picking up his mat and he's walking through town after he's healed. Paralyzed man, walking through town with his mat now. Why are you carrying a mat on the Sabbath day? And he says, oh, I don't know. I, I was paralyzed and now Jesus healed me and he told me to pick up my mat so I'm doing so. And they say to him, don't you know it's unlawful to carry your mat on the Sabbath day? Now they didn't stop and congratulate the man. They didn't stop and praise Jesus. 
They just use Sabbath as a stick against the man, saying you're not allowed to carry the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry a mat on the Sabbath day. So here now, in Mark chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus is retelling this Old Testament event when King David was famished, and he enters the tabernacle court, and he requested the consecrated bread that was set aside for the priests. And what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing out to the Pharisees that though this was consecrated for the priests, consecrated for worship, when David and his comrades were hungry, they came and got some. Against your law. So also, when I and my disciples are hungry, we glean through the fields, we come and get some while we're hungry. All of your Sabbath restrictions, he says to them, are missing the deeper point of God's provision of a gift. You see? They turn Sabbath into a series, a series of legalistic laws, and they miss the point of it all together. Even today, if you go to Israel, or to New York City, or to cities where there are really large Orthodox Jewish communities, you'll see these very strict Sabbath requirements lived out in time, right now, in these cities. So, for example, if you go to New York City, or you go to Tel Aviv, or Jerusalem, you might find what is called a Sabbath elevator. You ask, what's a Sabbath elevator? It's an elevator that can be turned on by the uh, building manager on Friday evening before the Sabbath begins, and it continues to go up and down nonstop throughout the day for the next 24 hours until the Sabbath ends. Such that if you need to go to your floor, to your apartment, and you're an Orthodox Jew, and you uh, walk into that elevator on floor number one, on the Sabbath day, you just walk in and you don't need to push any buttons. There you are on floor one, the door opens, then it closes. You go to floor two, the door opens, waits a few seconds, then it closes. It goes up to floor three, opens, then it closes. So that you do not have to push a button. Because it's been determined by the Orthodox Jews of the day that that is to work. To operate any electronics would be to work. And so you need not push any button since this is operating all 24 hours. That would be a long trip up to floor 56. Now, it's easy to laugh at that kind of thing, isn't it? Because we see the absurdity of it. The legalism of that doesn't serve as a blessing. It just makes more and more rules on top of what is intended to be a blessing in the original place. It's a legalism that does nothing for the soul. Now Jesus enters into this and he says in verse 27, this is the linchpin for the entire passage. He says, the Sabbath was made for men and women. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, what he's saying there is, The Sabbath is intended to be a gift. God gave that fourth commandment because it's part of a life of flourishing. It's really interesting to me that Jesus does not abolish the Sabbath here. He reframes it for us. And so he would say to us today that while the Pharisees turned the Sabbath into a stick to punish people, Jesus offers us the Sabbath 
as a gift to bless people. You see the difference? They used the Sabbath as a stick to punish people, a list of legal rules to check in on people. But Jesus says, no, you've missed the point. It's a blessing. It's a gift. So I would imagine that today, perhaps, Jesus would go to Orthodox Jews, and he might say, you have missed the point of the gift of Sabbath by trying too hard. You're trying too hard with your rules around the elevator. But perhaps, could it be that he would turn to most contemporary Christians, and he would say, you've missed the point of Sabbath by not trying at all? Could it be? Kind of quiet in here. We've missed the point of Sabbath by just kind of ignoring it to our detriment. Again, I used to laugh at those rule-keeping Pharisees until I went through a period in life where I was just way, way, way too busy. I was responsible for planting a church about 10 years ago north of Denver. And I was on point for that. And at the same time, we had a newborn son. And at the same time, I was finishing seminary. And life just got out of control, and I was not taking any breaks. I wasn't taking any days off for a number of months in a row. And into that, there was an older gentleman at the church that I was initially a part of that was sending us to start this new church that wrote me this letter, which I've held on to ever since. And he wrote, Adrian, my concern, my concern is that you will take on the responsibility that what God wants done cannot be done unless you do this or that. Adrian, take the time to totally rest physically and mentally for at least one whole day a week. I pray for all of you that none has the grandiose thoughts that your human effort is all that stands between this church getting off the ground or not. If God can put the world together in six days then take a rest, he can surely get this church done with all of you working and allow you to have one day to rest every week. I recognize that your work week is not 40 or 50 hours, but much more. Trust God that things will work out if you follow his example. Jesus did, and he was under a time frame also, and things worked out to God's perfection. Ooh, that's so good. So good to have older gentlemen or older women in our lives who slice us a bit, who call us to account. What he was reminding me of is the gift of this wonderful spiritual discipline called Sabbath and the danger that if I do not practice it, it will be to my own physical and emotional detriment. Here's a definition for Sabbath. On Sabbath, we rest, we remember, and we recreate for one full day every week. If you look at Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20, where you see these Ten Commandments, you see two primary purposes why God gave His people Sabbath. The first one is to rest from their labors. They work really hard for six days. Now on the seventh, you need a time to rest. You need to be refreshed. Most of us get two days to rest. They only got one. You get a day to rest and to be refreshed, just pause. Then the second reason was that they would remember 
what God had done in the past. Because Jews, of course, were slaves in Egypt. And the Israelites got these Ten Commandments right after they were released from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And God wanted them to take a day to remember how he answered their prayers in the past. And the truth of the matter is, if we don't take time to remember how God has intervened, we will forget. We all suffer from the same disease called amnesia. We'll forget. So to take a day that is holy, that is set apart, that is unique, that's different, and to rest and to remember what God has done, to remember the way God has answered our prayers in the past. And then it takes some time just to recreate, to be refreshed, to do things that help us, that recharge our batteries. That is what is meant by Sabbath. It's a specific day each week to take the handcuffs off and to remember that you are not primarily a unit of production. That your value before God is way more than what you do. That you are way more than busyness. That you are way more than what your employer deems you as valuable for. It's a day to rest and remember who you are before our God and Father who gave His Son to redeem you and to bring Him into His family. That's what it's about. A set-apart day to rest and remember and to be refreshed by the one who alone is God. And if we don't take it, no one will give it to us. It's a gift. It's a blessing that we have to take. That's why we call these spiritual disciplines. Again, a spiritual discipline is an activity within our power to do. We must exert effort if we want to become more like Christ. A spiritual activity within our power to do by repeated effort puts us in the stream of God's grace and enables us to become more and more like Christ. Now, a common question whenever we talk about Sabbath is, uh, what day? What day is most holy? Here's the answer. It doesn't matter. Pick a day. Romans 14 even says from the Apostle Paul, there's no one day that's more holy than any other day. So Jews historically have practiced Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night. Christians historically have practiced Sabbath for the most part on Sundays, a celebration of Christ's resurrection. But if you have to work on Sunday, as I do, feel no guilt about it, because I don't. Okay? Romans 14, again, says no day is holier than another day. Sunday is not a Sabbath for me. It's the least restful day for me. If you have to work on Saturday or Sunday, don't let anyone make you feel guilty about that. Choose another day and make it holy as unto the Lord, a day of reverence. Here's how it looks in our family. Our Sabbath begins on Friday night and it goes through Saturday evening. And on Friday evening, well, we begin, well, with a nice family meal together. And I typically light a few candles. And as I light candles, I say a word of blessing over Susie and Elijah and Silas. And after saying a word of blessing, we have a wonderful meal. And sometimes we'll watch a movie. Other times we'll play a game. Other times we'll sing songs. We'll just be together. The next day, we sleep in. And then we enjoy a great breakfast together, a home-cooked breakfast together. And, and then after that, we, we might play a game, or we might go to Cotton Mill Park for a hike. We might go fishing somewhere. We might have a sports activity on the calendar. Who knows? But we always seek to do two things on the Sabbath, no matter what. We pray, and we play. 
We spend time with God, reading the scriptures, praying, some more devotional time that we would normally not get on a regular day, a deeper time of fellowship with our God, and then we play together. We do something fun together. Maybe we'll have friends over, maybe we won't. Maybe we'll take a nap, maybe we won't. Maybe we'll watch a football game. All of that is fine, but we'll only do things that refresh us. Which means for us, in that 24-hour period, I won't be on email. Sorry, if you email me. I won't get it on Saturday. Now, if it's an emergency and if I get a phone call, I will tend tend to that emergency because Jesus says elsewhere that there's never a bad day to do good. And so if there's an emergency, I'll take care of that emergency that's come up. But otherwise, I'm not working on that day. And you know what? It becomes an oasis. To put away the devices. To put away all work refreshes us in such a profound way for the week to come it actually makes me more not less productive because this is the way our good God made us God invites us to a rhythm of rest and remembrance that will result in our refreshment he invites us into a rhythm of this rest and remembrance that will result in our refreshment I love the way theologian Abraham Heschel put it. He said, six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. But on the seventh day, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted within the soul. On the seventh day, we care for the seed of eternity planted within our souls. Now again, that's going to be different for every person in this room. There's no boundary line stated far from this stage. I don't want to give any kind of arbitrary legalism for anyone. And as we come to an end in this series, I just want to say, this is the time that we each individually determine what are the nudges that we put in our lives to put boundaries in place such that we do not allow ourselves to become units of production, such that we do not allow technology to overtake our lives. If this was true in different eras, when we didn't have technology, digital technology, it's especially true today. One family I know of, the way they fast, the way they practice from, as they practice Sabbath from digital technology is this. They turn everything off for one hour a day. They power it all down over dinner time. Then they power it all down one day a week, one full day. And then third, they power it all down one full week a year. Now those are principles. Those are boundaries for them. They won't be boundaries for everyone. But they nudge them toward prioritizing family and God. It's interesting that even Steve Jobs had nudges like this for his family. Steve Jobs, who invented the iPad and the iPhone, didn't allow his school-aged kids to use those devices more than 45 minutes a day. He understood in advance how powerful they are. Okay, so what do we do here as we close? I want to just invite you as we close to this beautiful statement that many of you have heard. It comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession of Faith asks the question, what is the chief end of humanity? And it answers the question, the chief end of man is this, to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. This is why we did this series. That we would learn to glorify God. That we would learn to enjoy him more forever. That we would understand that if we say no to some things for the benefit of our own discipleship, it's not no for the sake of no, it's no for the sake of a better yes. Jesus invites us, I have come to give you life and life in abundance. The enemy came to steal and kill and destroy. He still comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life in abundance. And so we all, we're all so wise to pause and just say, God, how do I go after the life that you want for me? The abundant life. And make no mistake, the life of discipleship that we've been talking about these six weeks is very difficult. It requires swimming upstream, which is why we must have a few other people with us. But also, we make no mistake that the life of non-discipleship is way harder, and it's not even close. I lived the life of non-discipleship for many years, and it's way harder than living the life of discipleship to Christ. Many of you lived the life of non-discipleship for many years, even decades, and it's the life of joylessness and addiction and having no peace and having no hope for the future. That's the natural result of moving downstream with culture. So God, would you please give us courage? Would you please give us wisdom to move upstream against culture, even if it's hard? that we might glorify you and enjoy you forevermore. Let's pray to our God. God, I'm so grateful that you call us to something greater. I'm so thankful, Lord, that your word is not a bunch of rules, not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's so much more than that. Your word invites us to a life of flourishing, that begins with a great relationship with Jesus who gave it all for us and then extends as we learn to live with Christ more and more. And that's what discipleship is. Increasing our frequency and our duration of holy moments with the one who alone is God. And so God, as we wrap up this series, we give ourselves to you afresh. We surrender to you. We ask you to reign in our lives. We ask, God, that you would give us wisdom on how we would create space in our lives for these spiritual disciplines that we would be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. We're so thankful, Lord, that you're patient with us because we're stubborn and we're forgetful and we like to go our own way. And for that, Lord, we are truly sorry. We humbly repent. We give ourselves to you we ask, God, that you would have your way in us. I pray for every friend in here that you would grow us starting this week in the abundant life that Jesus offers. That we would enjoy you more this week as we say yes to God. As we develop more discipline, we could begin to enjoy you more and more for the glory of God and for the good of our families.
Christ's name we pray. And God's people say,